Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 10, Genesis chapters 10 and 11. Okay, um, the importance of Genesis chapters 10 and 11 and we're in Genesis chapter 10 right at the moment, is that those two chapters together form a bridge from the beginning of the new world immediately after the flood to the greatest of the biblical patriarchs, Abraham. Now, as brief as these two chapters are, we get a linkage of genealogy between Shem and Abraham, as well as the all-important lines of descent that have now been divided and separated into three distinct groups, each with their own destiny. And this destiny was contained in the blessings, and for one son a curse, that Noah pronounced upon his three boys, and we took a look at this last week. Now, let me make something clear. Shem, Ham, and Yafet were not the only sons Noah produced. Okay? They were but the sons selected for reasons unknown to be included in the group of Tzaddik, the righteous. Those eight people who were allowed to live through the flood for the purpose of repopulating the world. Now, Noah had many sons and daughters over the 600 years of life he had attained at the moment the flood began, and I suspect fathered many more after the flood. Now, there were apparently no good reasons, or did it add anything to the purpose of the story to give the names and talk about all these other sons and daughters, so they just weren't written up. Right. Of course, Shem, Ham, and Yafet were the only surviving sons of Noah. All the rest, daughters, granddaughters, grandsons, all right, great-grandsons, and too many greats and greats and greats to even speak of here, were all deemed wicked by Yahweh, and they were destroyed right along with everyone else in that flood. Well, let's kind of review from last week by rereading a few verses of, of chapter 10 in Genesis. And I'm going to start with 6, and I'm going to skip around here a little bit. So just, just follow me the best you can. I'm going to start at verse 6 as a memory refresher. Chapter 10, verse 6. The sons of Ham were Cush, Mitzrayim, Phut, Canaan. The sons of Cush were Svah, Havilah, Saftah, Ramah, and Saftah. The sons of Ramah were Shva and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod, who was the first powerful ruler on earth. He was a mighty hunter before Adonai. This is why people say like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before Adonai. His kingdom began with Bavel, Erech, Ahad, and Kalni in the land of Shinar. 
Asher went out from that land and built Nineveh. The city Rehavot, Kalah, and Resen between Nineveh and Kalah, that one is the great city. That's as far as we'll go for the moment. So in verse 6, we follow the line of Ham. We say Ham. It's not really Ham, it's Ham. Okay? We have Ham at Easter. And of all the wild things, is that wild when you think about this? That we would have pork to celebrate our Jewish Savior. That is the wildest thing. Anyway, I couldn't, I can't just, I just can't go by that very often, you know. Alright, and we need to pay close attention to these names that come. Uh, because they're going to play a very prominent role in the Bible. Cush is Ethiopia. Mitzrayim is Egypt. Put is Libya, and Canaan is the founder of the land of Canaan, conquered by Joshua, which became Israel. Those descendants of Canaan form many of the people of the Middle East and the Orient, some of which are often mistakenly called Arabs. Okay. Remember, Arabs for the most part, are of the line of Shem, not Ham. Okay. Now, we're told that Cush was the father of the infamous Nimrod. Now, it might come as a surprise to you that Nimrod was a black man. Okay. This is not at all conjecture. Many figurines and etchings of Nimrod have been found, going back thousands of years, and they all confirm his Negro features. And it is perfectly logical that Nimrod should be a black man because in the Bible, whenever you see people called Cushites, that is, people des descended from Cush, you could, for your own frame of reference, call them Ethiopians, generally speaking. Okay? The race of black people. Further, it is ancient Jewish tradition that Ham was a black man. Now, we should not just mention Nimrod's name and then quickly move on. We'll talk more about him after we read the next chapter. Suffice it to say, for now, that ancient Assyrian tablets found in large quantities not only mention Nimrod, but they confirm the title for him that we see in uh, Genesis 10, verse 9, Mighty Hunter. But as the Assyrian tablets explain, this isn't because he was good at, at killing deer, or fowl, rabbits, wild boars. This expression means a hunter of men, a warrior. And being a fierce warrior, he became the very first empire builder and would-be world tyrant. And that first empire was Babel. All right, the most ancient Babylon we're talking about here now. Not the Babylon of Nebuchadnezzar, which came along centuries later. Now, during Nimrod's day, Babel, Babylon, was located in the land of Shinar. Take a look here. Here's the Persian Gulf down here on my right, the land of Shinar. 
Now this is an area a little west of where Abraham would come from. All right? He would come from an area down here. All right? And it's today this is located in modern day Iraq. All right? Now Nimrod is credited with being the builder of Babel along with three other major cities in that area. Next we're told that Asher went forth and built Nineveh, the fabulous city at the heart of Assyria. And like in Babylon, this Asher fellow built three more great cities in Assyria. Who is Asher? Well, Asher is simply the Assyrian name for Nimrod. It's the same guy. Okay, Nimrod's Babylonian, Asher is Assyrian. Same guy. Verse 11 is speaking about the same man, just using a different language. Now let me give you a little secret about biblical names. Very often in the Bible, you're going to see the same person with as many as three or four different names. Depending on which nation that person was residing in, what era the biblical account was actually written versus when the recorded event actually happened, and which culture was speaking of him. Because just like today, where Rick or Ricky is an American nickname, Richard is the more formal English title, Ricardo is a Spanish title, and Ricardo, and I can't even say the word the way they can say it, is Brazilian, we're all speaking of the same name. Okay, The same thing happens in the Bible concerning nations, regions, cities. All right. The names change over the years as cultures and languages change, but it's still referring to the same person or the same place. Now in verse 13, we're told something that has great impact on our current events. Mitzrayim, son of Ham, the line of evil, cursed by God, Mitzrayim fathered a people called the Koslukim. The Koslukim. All right, you see them right here on the chart? Koslukim. Coming down Ham through Mitzrayim, he fathered the Koslukim. And from the Koslukim descended the dreaded Philistine. All right, the Philistines. All right. And we need to remember that the modern word for Philistine is Palestine. All right. The Palestinians of today, many of them do, claim to be descendants of the mil of the Philistines who are descended from Ham. In fact, it's not true. All right. The bulk of the Palestinians who we see fighting the Israeli Jews every night on TV are but Arabs from various areas of the Middle East who came as immigrants to the Holy Land area over the last 75 to 100 years seeking work, Jewish farms and Jewish factories. And Arabs are not from the line of Ham, they're from the line of Shem. Now that said, the fact is that many of these people have made a conscious decision out of their hatred for Israel to identify with the Philistines because the Philistines were Israel's archenemy. 
but they've in, uh, unwittingly created an enormous problem for themselves. And I'd like you to just follow along with me on this thought. Just as a person, as we've been reading now already in Genesis, and we'll have it cemented in us over the next m several months, just as a person of any descent can become an Israelite by formally, formally identifying themselves with Israel on a physical level, by converting and becoming a Jew, okay? Right. So can a person become a Philistine by identifying with the Philistines. Okay? Many Palestinian Arabs have given up their heritage of the line of good, Shem. Now we're, when we get to start to talking about Abraham and Isaac and Ishmael, you're going to find that, that Ishmael was given an immense blessing. Okay? So, remember that. But they gave up. Here are these Palestinian Arabs who come from this line of blessing have given it up to identify and join with the line of the curse, the line of evil, Ham. They, has a, have, as have most Arabs, naturally have also given up their Semite god, Yahweh, for a false god, Allah. And they're going to be judged for it. All right? And we really need to pray for them before, before it's too late for them to wake up to this terrible fact. They really don't understand what they've done to themselves. Okay? Anyway, we see a list of tribes spawned by Canaan in verses 15 through 18. And later, during the exodus from Egypt, you're going to see a whole lot of these names reappear as enemies of the Israelites who are going to try to keep Israel from coming into the promised land. Well, in verse 21, we now come to the blessed line of Shem, the line of good. Now, notice we come across the name Asher up here. All right? This is not the Asher who built Nineveh. This is another person. This is that, that Asher was the Assyrian name for Nimrod. This is another person all right, named Asher. Now, let me sum up the most important aspect of the verses spelling out the line of Shem. You'll notice that Shem is referred to as the father or ancestor of the children or descendants of Eber or Eber. All right? This is key to his, uh, Hebrew history. Because from the line of Eber would come another of God's divisions, right here, Peleg and Yoktan. Big division here. Right. Dividing, electing, separating. Okay. Now watch out for this. Okay. This is a major theme. This dividing, electing, separating. Right, that points away that God works his will throughout the whole Bible. All right, and for that matter, in our own lives. Peleg and Yoktan were brothers, sons of Eber. All right. Interestingly, Peleg means division. 
For from the line of Peleg came Abraham, from whom God's plan to rescue all mankind, to restore fallen man to himself, was going to come. Okay, let's move on now to uh, Genesis chapter 11. I'm going to read the whole thing through. Genesis chapter 11. The whole earth used the same language, the same words. It came about as they traveled from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and lived there. And they said to one another, come, let's make bricks and bake them in the fire. So they had bricks for building stone and clay for mortar. And then they said, come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that has its top reaching up into the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves and not be scattered all over the earth. Adonai came down to see the city and to and the tower the people were building. And Adonai said, look, the people are united. They all have a single language and see what they're starting to do at this rate. Nothing they set out to accomplish will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down and confuse their language so that they won't understand each other's speech. So from there, Adonai scattered them all over the earth and they stopped building the city. For this reason, it is called Babel, confusion. Because there, Adonai confused the language of the whole earth and from there, Adonai scattered them over all the earth. Now here is the genealogy of Shem. Shem was a hundred years old when he fathered Arkpashad two years after the flood. After Arkpashad was born, Shem lived another 500 years and had sons and daughters. Arkpashad lived 35 years and fathered Shalat. Shalat was born, Arkpashad lived another 403 years and had sons and daughters. Shalat lived 30 uh, years and fathered Eber. After Eber was born, Shalak lived another 403 years and had sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years and fathered Peleg. After Peleg was born, Eber lived 430 years and had sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years and fathered Reu. After Reu was born, Peleg lived another 209 years and had sons and daughters. Reu lived 32 years and fathered Shrug. After Shrug was born, Reu lived another 207 years and had sons and daughters. Shrug lived 30 years and fathered Nehor. After Nehor was born, Shrug lived another 200 years and had sons and daughters. Nehor lived 29 years and fathered Terah. After Terah was born, Nehor lived another 119 years and had sons and daughters. Terah lived 70 years and fathered Avram, Nahor, and Haran. Here's the genealogy of Terah. Terah fathered Avram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died before his father Terah in the land where he was born in Ur of the Kashdim. Then Avram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Avram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran. He was the father of Milcah and of Yishka. Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took his son Avram and his son Haran's son Lot and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Avram's wife, and they left Ur of the Kashdim to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, 
they stayed there. Taroth lived 205 years and he died in Haran. Well, in chapter 10, we had an expansive summary of the genealogical history of the Earth's nations. Now in chapter 11, we're going to take a step back and we're going to begin by examining Nimrod, or as they would say, Nimrod, all right, and why the Earth's people spread out so rapidly and thoroughly. Now we're told up to that time of Nimrod that every person in the whole world spoke the same language. Okay. Now apparently, people were dispersing at a very measured rate and they stayed quite linked due to the common language because they didn't separate themselves with, from each other, they just expanded like so much urban sprawl. All right. Notice also which direction they had expanded. They expanded east, actually a little east and south. Now there's that east word again. And it's a word of importance for us, and here it has the greatest meaning. Notice the wording of the verse that says they, meaning the bulk of Noah's descendants, came from the east to the land of Shinar, rather than saying they moved to the east. That's a tad confusing, because Shinar is south and east from where they came. Now, Shinar, as I mentioned earlier, is in modern-day Iraq near the Persian Gulf, right, in an area today dominated by the city of Basra, who we've heard about on the news for a long, too long now. Shinar and Sumer, we've heard both of those names, are the same place, right? just two different languages. Okay? Shinar and Sumer, same exact place. Now, here's why the reference in the Bible of moving, it says they moved from the east. Okay. By going east from where God had placed them, they in essence were moving away from God. Okay. Now, we shouldn't necessarily think of what they did by moving as evil, per se, because after all, they were pretty much accomplishing that which God had said he wanted them to do. Spread, repopulate the planet. Rather, by the biblical de uh, designation that they were going away from east, turning their backs to the sun, if you would, right, it was symbolic of their wanting to gain independence from God. Right? A lot like some of us who couldn't wait to reach the age of majority so that we could move away from that authority of our parents, right? Or am I the only one? No. Probably not. Now, Nimrod found the city of Babel, which we now call Babylon, in the sense, not really in the sense that it was he who planted a stake in the ground and said, build here. I mean, it, well, there wasn't a vacant piece of ground, almost for sure, and he said, let's build here. He likely took over rulership at some point in the city's early development, which was the most common practice, all right, and took it to another level. 
Now, in time, Babel became a huge city, with the smallest estimates being that it was a mile square inside of its walls, and the larger estimates at five times that size. And of course, there's that tower, the Tower of Babel. Okay, now, technically, the tower was a ziggurat, kind of a step pyramid. Right. Now, several ancient ziggurats have been discovered in modern-day Iraq and Iran. And this particular ziggurat, we're told, was built for two stated purposes. A, to reach up to heaven so that they could make a name for themselves, and B, to make sure they weren't scattered. Okay, bottom line, rebellion of an enormous scale. And we saw in the last couple of weeks that Shem, the name Shem, means name. All right? And the word Shem is used in these verses when it says Nimrod's followers wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to make a Shem, or more properly pronounced shame, for themselves. All right? But recall that the word name as it means here, is not referring to Bob or Elizabeth or Fred in that sense. All right. This Hebrew word shame, shem, all right, would better be translated as reputation. All right. Because it carries with it a sense of power and authority. All right. For instance, Nimrod means mighty hunter. All right. Mighty hunter, Nimrod, was his name, his reputation. So they built a tower up to the heavens to make a reputation of having power and authority in themselves. And the reason they wanted the reputation was to show God they were not going to be obedient to him and scatter as they fully understood they were to do. Okay. Further, Anyone planning on being a dictator, which was what Nimrod had in mind, has to demonstrate that he's all-powerful so that the people would submit to him. And that was very much a part of what he was doing in this defiance. Well, it's apparent from the wording that even from the days of Noah, man was to scatter, to disperse, to repopulate the whole earth. These were God's instructions. Those orders hadn't been lost or forgotten. They'd simply been ignored. But now at Nimrod's leadership, they set out to openly defy God's order to disperse. As it says in verse 4, that we not be scattered over the earth. Well, the idea in these early Babylonian brains all right, was this. God lives in heaven, no big deal. Right? We, man, with our wonderful intelligence, can invent a way to build a tower right up to heaven. We can live up in the heavens, too, if we wish. Right? And when we get there, we're going to tell God that we decided we like all the power and the knowledge and wealth and comforts we've attained by staying together, by not scattering, and that's just the way we're going to keep it, and there's nothing you can do, God, about one thing about it. And by the way, when anybody else hears about this, we'll really make a reputation for ourselves. Nobody would ever want to come against us. Now, is that very far from where we stand today 
It's humankind? I don't think so. Isn't man currently saying, God, your ways are old and obsolete. They're dying. Okay, We have amassed such superior knowledge that we can not only solve our own problems, we can do it better than you can. In fact, you and those backwards people staring at me out here, all right, who stay stuck to you and to your ways are just a hindrance to where we as mankind want to go and can go without any help from you. Thank you very much. We don't need your silly moral directives. We can make our own as we need them relevant for every situation. Life, we can produce life. Shoot, we can manufacture it to our own specifications. Marriage, only between male and female, great for times long past, not for today. What Nimrod did is nothing different from what our secular humanist culture is leading us to do today. Rebellion, pure and simple. Now in verse 5, we come to one of those figurative expressions. In that God came down to look at the tower. God didn't have to move all right, to know what was happening. But, and I'll tell you, I really love this. God put this rebellion down in an absolutely brilliant stroke. He gave everybody different languages. I mean, try putting together a team building anything when nobody speaks anybody else's language. I know we got missionaries in here. All right, and it's a real challenge. All right. Um, by the way, paleolinguists, scientists who research the history of language, have come to the conclusion very recently um, that all language sprang from one source. What a surprise! Okay, and they're working very hard to discover which one. I mean, talk about a waste of time. I mean, all they got to do is read this. Well, verse 6, when we look at the Hebrew, gives us some interesting insight. It says that what God saw when he looked upon these people was unity. They were united and they had a single language. They all spoke as one. And in Hebrew, it says they were echad. which is an attribute, of course, of God himself. One, unified, echad. That is, the people were organically connected and inseparable, and God didn't like it. But what's so bad about their being united? I mean, all for one and one for all, isn't this the cry from every pulpit and every church in our land? Unity, unity. I mean, you see, unity in the sense mankind, including the church, defines it is a false doctrine. Here in Bavel, the people had a leader. They had a vision and they had a purpose that they thought was good. So, they all thought it and they all wanted it. They had unity. All right? Yet when we examine the scriptures, we don't see God unifying. Okay? We see God dividing electing and separating. In fact, 
Later, when we see Israel wind up in Egypt, and then when we study the laws of Leviticus, we're going to see Yahweh constantly telling the people to separate themselves from unclean and unholy people. To separate pure and impure categories of food and animals and behaviors. Separation was his intention for Nimrod and his followers. Now, unity in itself is not a bad thing. The key is what or whom the unifying agent is. Consensus and compromise are man's kind of unity. It's the kind that we see throughout Christendom and the world in general. It is men holding hands, all saying, we are one. God's type of unity is unity in him. It's each individual holding Christ's hand. And, and like the hub of a spoked wheel, Christ is the point through which all unity flows. It has nothing to do with consensus or compromise or even majority rules. Now what is also fascinating is that we get a wonderful demonstration of this principle in the form of the opposite thing happening. Opposite from the Tower of Babel happening thousands of years later. Okay, Re Remember our principle of opposites from week six. Okay. Everything in our universe has an opposite, or for you scientists, a reverse corollary. Okay. Here in the story of the Tower of Babel, God is once again demonstrating how he will divide and separate that which man wants to unify. And the dividing mechanism he used on this occasion was language. Now in the book of Acts, however, we see man being unified in God's way okay, at the day of Pentecost. In effect, unifying that which he had divided and separated, divided and separated over 2,000 years earlier. Turn your Bibles to Acts. Acts 2. Acts 2, please. And we're going to take a look at verses 1 through 21. I mean, th this is a really important connection to make. Acts 2, verse 1. The festival of Shavuot had arrived, and the believers all gathered together in one place. Shavuot, Pentecost. Suddenly there came a sound from the sky like the roar of a violent wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then they saw what looked like tongues of fire, which separated and came to rest on each one of them. They were all filled with the Ruach HaKodesh, Holy Spirit, and they began to, to talk in different languages as the Spirit enabled them to speak. Now, they were staying in Jerusalem, religious Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd gathered. They were confused because each one heard the believers speaking in his own language. Totally amazed. They asked, how is this possible? Aren't all these people who are speaking from the Galil, from Galilee? How is it that we hear them speaking in our own language? 
We are Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents from Mesopotamia, Judah, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews by birth and proselytes, Jews from Crete and from Arabia. How is it that we hear them speaking in our own languages the great things God has done? Amazed and confused, they all went on asking each other, what can this mean? But others made fun of them and said they just had too much wine. Then Kepha, Peter, stood up at, with the eleven and raised his voice to address them. You, Judeans, and all of you staying here in Jerusalem, let me tell you what this means. And listen to me carefully. These people aren't drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Now, this is what was spoken through the prophet Yoel. Adonai says, in the last days I will pour out from my spirit upon everyone. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your men, young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my slaves, both men and women, will I pour out from my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will perform miracles in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood, fire, and thick smoke. The sun will become dark and the moon blood before the great and fearful day of Adonai comes. And then whoever calls on the name of Adonai will be saved. I mean, do you see this fascinating connection between Pentecost, Shavuot, and the Tower of Babel? Okay. At the Tower, God broke up man's kind of unity by giving them different language so they couldn't communicate. So that man's kind of unity was undone and limited. The human spirit was what was driving mankind at the Tower of Babel and the human spirit was what was defining unity. Now at Pentecost, Shavuot, God puts the Holy Spirit into man and unifies them by means of God's spirit, not by means of compromise and consensus. The unity was not a physical type of unity. It was a spiritual kind. He even gave them the ability to understand and speak languages they never understood or spoke before. The exact opposite of what happened at the Tower of Babel when he gave them languages that they couldn't understand. Well, let's talk about Nimrod a little bit. Nimrod was a real, literal man but he was also a type. He is the first of a type of man who wanted to rule the world and represents all the attributes of he who will become the last man who wants to rule the world, the Antichrist. Nimrod is the man of sin who was fully possessed of Satan by the complete agreement of his own evil inclination. So will many who come after Nimrod be of the same type. We see many of them in the Bible. Pharaoh, Antiochus Epiphanes, Nero, Hitler, to name but a few. All this culminating in the lawless one, that man of sin, the beast, called the Antichrist. And of course, 
This is to oppose the man who is the exact opposite. Yeshua, Jesus the Christ, who is fully possessed and is one with Yahweh. Now Nimrod of the cursed line of Ham, son of Cush, is credited with being the first empire builder in history. He is the first to want to dominate not just the animals, but men. Okay. He is the first to build a walled city. This is a clue as to why he is thought to be the inventor of warfare. That is, there's really only one reason to build a wall around where you live, self-protection. And if you're the first to think of that idea, imagine how you could go out and raid and conquer others and then retreat to safety behind those walls so that others couldn't do the same thing to you. Okay. Nimrod married Semiramis. And after he died, his wife declared him to be God. Okay. Further, as the earthly wife of God, she made herself queen of heaven. They had a son named Tammuz. Tammuz was considered to be the rebirth or reincarnation of Nimrod. So now we had a god, a man, a man god ruler, Tammuz, whose essence was Nimrod. This formulation of God the Father, Queen of Heaven Mother, and a son whose essence was the rebirth of the Father became the basis for all future false religions. Those religions that God calls Mystery Babylon religions, they all have their starting point with Nimrod. Now, ever since that day, both Nimrod and Semiramis, now deified as God and Goddess, have appeared by different names. Names reflecting the language and the culture who adopted them. Semiramis, as the mother of all mothers, was therefore the fertility goddess. Okay. In Egypt, her name is Isis. In India, it's Indrani. In Asia, it's Sibyl. And later, particularly in the area of the Holy Land, she'll be called Ashtaroth. Okay. Her oldest known name is Astarte. Okay. Now, as for Nimrod, his god image became known as the biblical Baal. Okay. And as the god-man Ninus, who built Nineveh. Later, Nimrod would be known as Marduk, and then eventually as Molech. Now, I show you this so that you can see the tangle of evil that shows up in our scriptures from beginning to end. And what it is that makes up what's called the Mystery Babylon religions, at least foundationally. Okay, and, and where they came from, and, and how the prophetic curse of the line of Ham by Noah is playing out. You can bet your boots the Antichrist is going to come from the line of Ham. I don't know who, but it's, he's going to come from the line of Ham. That's how it's going to play out. Now, interestingly, the name of the city Nimrod first built, Bavel, had in more ancient times a different meaning than it does now. 
Okay. Notice the spelling of Babel. Okay. The L indicates the word God, the highest God, actually. Okay. Originally, Babel meant the city of God. Okay. Eventually, its meaning got changed to reflect what happened there. All right. And the word Babel came to mean confusion. Now, in the end, as a result of the confusion of languages, the city of Babel, Babylon, stopped its expansion. And the people moved out, and now at a much faster pace began to repopulate far-flung places in the world. Now, isn't it curious how at that point in man's history, God judged man by confusing human language and forced us to disperse. But then, at Pentecost, thousands of years later, God blessed man through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit when God's truth could be understood by everyone of every language. And as marvelous as that event was, it was to point to yet another time in the future when the people of God in all the nations of the world would come back from our dispersion, so to speak, to unite under one spirit, under our present and future king, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ. We call this united kingdom of God the millennial kingdom. Okay. But wouldn't you know, but just like everything else Satan has planned, he is quickly working towards a counterfeit of this in the form of his own one world government. We today are in that generation that is actively trying to reincarnate what Nimrod did. Okay, to bind all the world into one people, Echad, under one rule and one ruler, a man. And large segments of the church are blindly leading the way preaching tolerance, world harmony, peace at any price, and the end of Torah, such that instead we should trust the goodness of our hearts. Well, from verse 10 to the end of this chapter, the lineage of Shem, beginning with him and taking us all the way to Abraham's recounted. We're also given some good basic information about Abraham and his family. For instance, Abraham's father was Terah, and Abraham had two brothers, or at least two. All right, and their names were Nehor and Haran. And Haran had a son named Lot. Lot. All right, but Haran died. And we see that Abraham married a woman named Sarai. We later find out that she was the daughter of another of Abraham's father's wives. So Sarai was Abraham's half-sister. Right? And we're told that for some reason Sarai couldn't seem to have children. Now a curious thing, often overlooked, is told in verse 31. It seems that it was initially Terah, not Abraham, who first got the call to take his family and move to the land of Canaan. Okay. And when Terah got that call, he and his family were living in the city of Ur of the Chaldees. Now, the Chaldees was an ancient culture in that area. 
Sumer was the region's name, Sumer or Shinar, and Ur was in essence the capital city. It was also a very wicked place. In fact, it was the cultural center for the worship of the moon god Herky, who today is known as Allah. Now, interestingly, for some reason, Tarak did leave Ur, but instead of heading southwest, he's starting out here, instead of heading southwest to Canaan, all right, instead, he went north. All right, and um, when they arrived at a certain city, they decided to stay instead of going on to Canaan. Now, why, we're not told, but it was there that Abraham's brother Haran died and the city was named after him some years later. By the way, technically at this time, Abraham was not yet called Abraham. He was called Avram, all right, or in, which means exalted father. It was going to be several years before God would change his name from Avram to Avraham, which meant father of many. I think rather than going to Genesis 12, we'll just stop right here for tonight.